Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Martin Klesinski's interest in computer software was sparked when a battle to remove malware from his home computer led him to discover the world of cybergeeks. He teamed up with some of them to provide a public service, later turning a freemium model into a highly lucrative global business. He told me the story during a recent visit to London. Born in Poland, moved to Chicago with my parents quite early in my life. Fast forward to living with my stepfather, my mother, in a small town in Chicago. We have a computer virus because I got the computer virus, of course, downloading a video game online and um, didn't really know what to do. My parents were quite upset. This was at the age of 14. So I went online like anybody else would, Googled my problem and found a security forum with tons of volunteers that were helping people like me get rid of malware. And to me, these were superheroes. I mean, who spends their time online trying to help others for free for copious amounts of time? So they gave me a pamphlet of information to basically go help myself, which they had compiled. And I said, this is crazy. It took three days to run through the instructions. So (laughs) I spent maybe three or four years just writing free applications to automate some of that pamphlet. (laughs) It was just really, let me help you try to automate that. I met a couple of people there that I got quite close with. We started just chatting about how we can improve this, how we can recruit more people. There was a boot camp on how you can become one of these helpers. And one of them was a gentleman named Bruce, the other was Doug, and um, it was just as simple as, why don't we just build an antivirus program? These antiviruses are clearly not working. So here's this 16, 17-year-old kid at that time, two 35-year-old guys. Imagine talking to your wife and saying, I'm just working with a 16-year-old kid online. I mean, that's... (laughs) Well, and you telling your parents that. Same thing, right? Yeah, I'm just working with this 35-year-old guy. We're building an antivirus. Don't worry, mom. It's all okay. (laughs) <laughs> so it was a bit weird, but you know, we met finally in Chicago uh, a couple years later. We hadn't met until we made a million dollars together. We hadn't even spoken on the phone. This was all via this forum. Let's put this together. We didn't even really have documentation that we were partners in the company. So luckily we were both ethical and kind of put that together and you know ironed it out. Not to say that my motives have changed, but in the very beginning, there was no interest in making a profit. There was no interest in hiring people. It was simply let's some effort together and help the world. And again, not that the motive has changed, but now we have families to feed, we have people to bring on board, but it's still very much just trying to help people. You now have a lot of staff and it's a big business serving thousands of businesses. Yeah, so we've got 700 people in the company today. We have hundreds of millions of consumers on the free user base. We've got tens of thousands of businesses using the product in a paid fashion. So it's a growing business, but really it goes back to the need. There were a lot of big companies when you were starting out and you were just these three people doing it. As you say, you hadn't even met. Can you explain you know, how it was operating? Yeah, it goes back to really what Malwarebytes is. We started off as a remediation product, meaning we would clean up the mess caused by the other antiviruses. 
if you go on a website and get infected or do what I did, I mean, I had an antivirus when I first got infected, one of the big ones that you've heard of, and it didn't solve the problem. It didn't prevent the problem and then it couldn't solve it after. So we went after solving the problem first, getting that computer back to a healthy state. And it turns out if you can do that, you could have prevented the problem in the first place. So we pivoted to selling prevention, just like the other antivirus companies, but at a much lower price in the very beginning. That's really when that pivoted, and that was in 2008. We launched the first version of that product. And again, by the end of the year, we had made a million dollars, basically. How were you funding that? Completely bootstrapped. We were bootstrapped until the very beginning of, I believe it was 2012. So turns out, if you don't go hiring an empire and you only need a couple of servers, you know, you can pay the $20 out of your own pocket and maintain these servers. Now, as the scale started getting larger, we needed to reinvest that money. So that's why we introduced the paid product as well. Um, what were you doing at this stage? I was just entering the University of Illinois. And I actually finished the University of Illinois in four and a half years. So it took me a little longer. And my grade point average was pretty dismal. But the university hadn't actually known what was going on. My favorite story is I'm in my dormitory. This was in the very early days of Malwarebytes, first year of the product being out there. And I'm playing around with a virus on the university network just to see how it works, try to understand it. And I get a message that says, your computer's been isolated from the network. You must call this number. We will come and clean your computer and fix your computer. So this person who probably knows far less than me actually about computers, knocks on my door, walks in and says, yep, looks like you've got a virus and runs Malwarebytes right in front of me. And I sit there quietly right behind him just, uh-huh, that, that looks like a great product there. <laughs> and then he released me from the network. And I realized I had to be a little bit more safe when it came to actually disassembling viruses on the network. A way of getting to know your customers. A way to get to know my customers. I was able to self-fund university through this. We were, again, you know, growing very, very rapidly, just a couple of partners. The harder part was trying to balance schoolwork and a company, right? And especially at the tail end of my tenure at the University of Illinois, we were 150, 200 people. And I don't know if you've ever been to Champaign, Illinois. I would never recommend it, but it is a city with maybe 80,000 people surrounded by, you know, cornfields in every direction for miles and miles on end. So there's not very easy access to get to San Francisco where our office was. So I, it would be a day trip just to get to Chicago, to San Francisco. So I was pretty isolated from the team. We actually have a teleconferencing solution in, in our office that's high definition, digital. I mean, it's almost as if you're in the room. So in the very early days, we were using that quite often. I would travel quite a bit. We also had a culture ambassador, which was a very unique role at the time and maybe even today. And her role was to just keep me informed of everything going on in that office from a cultural perspective. So like, what would she do? you know, hosting parties and, and just little things here and there that just show people appreciation. But at the same time, it was, if rumor windmills started going, it's like, let's tackle these problems head on because I'm remote. For me to fly there, uh, you know, two months later to find out about a rumor that's been going like a wildfire, it's not the right culture that we want. So she would keep me informed of that kind of stuff. She would help me coordinate all the staff meetings, even if I was remote, so we could, you know, communicate to the staff. And in today's day and age, our culture ambassador actually is in charge of one of our most important events, which is our summit. And every year we bring all of the staff together in person. Now, I realize that that costs a tremendous amount of money, but would I rather enable 500 of now 700 people to be better 
by walking them through the strategy in person, shaking hands, you know, people that are remote and we don't see very often, keeping them together and mentally in the game, or would I rather hire like 10 more people, right? That's the cost we're, we're talking about here. Can you explain, you know, how the cash flow was working so that you were able to build that growth? We started off as a consumer-only company, and that is a very profitable sale, especially software, because for every unit I sell, my costs are minimal, right? Whereas if you have a widget, for every unit you sell, you have incremental cost. So we were very fortunate to have thought up a software idea and not a you know USB stick or a car, whatever it might have been. So from the very beginning, we were generating a lot of cash per product sold, and we didn't have engineers. I was the engineer. A very poor one, I might add, but it was pretty profitable from day one. As we had to start supporting these customers and start building hardware to host you know, a lot of these solutions and mm. our content costs to serve the upgrades and our customer support sales team, that's when the costs started to get a bit bigger, but we were already at scale and we didn't need to raise money until 2012. That was uh... Highland Capital and that was $30 million to really just slam on the gas pedal and get a sales team in, a marketing team in, because we saw this greenfield opportunity in enterprise sales. We saw thousands of businesses using the free consumer product and they're going, can we buy something from you? (laughs) Which is a great problem to have, but you need the support there. And tell me a bit about your customers. Every company in the world uses the free consumer product. Eventually they come to us and say, you know, we're sick of remediating and we'd like to prevent. And remediation is free for consumers. It's not necessarily for businesses, but they do it anyway. And we're kind of okay with that because at the end of the day, it just shows them how many times they have to clean up the environment behind the traditional antivirus that they have. So it's a tremendous lead generation tool for us. We have customers from all types of industries. We've got finance, we've got healthcare, and those are very impacted organizations with regards to breaches, as you've probably seen in the news recently. But even some of the coolest technology companies that exist today have bought our Mac product. You know, a lot of them are early Mac adopters. 50,000 business customers from the biggest company in the world to a small dentist shop down the street. And it's a freemium model, but there's maybe a sense of don't get too hung up on the fact that the people who could pay not paying to begin with because you may actually draw those people in. Exactly. I'm a huge believer in freemium. And if a customer is not converting from free to paid, you haven't incentivized or you haven't made it clear why one solution is better than the other. So most of the products that are free that I use, if they've done a great job of saying, here's what you get in the premium version, I buy the premium version. So just removing advertisements may not necessarily be motivating enough for me, but a cool feature here or there that unlocks something that makes my life a little easier, I think that's a great model to have. How do you work out what those are? For us, it's pretty easy. It's remediation versus prevention. I think for other companies, you know, keeping back some of the most lucrative features that you think customers will like, I think it's surveying your users, really understanding the market. I know a lot of friends who started companies and they don't talk to their customers. We have user groups from customers that are actual customers. We've interviewed 300 consumers, which is a tough feat, um, but also people that have never heard of Malwarebytes. We try to pull them off the street you know, through agencies and so on, and sit them down in front of our product and say, use the product. And that is a very sobering <laughs> couple of minutes as a product that you think you've built quite well and you've got hundreds of millions of users and you're so happy, but you're sitting behind this person, a school teacher, let's say, and she's just 
you know, looking at the product and doesn't get it because it's not clear. It will really sober you up and, and you'll scratch your head and go, wow, we need to really fix this because it is confusing. And my mother is a perfect example of this. If she, she calls me every day, how do you do this? How do you do that? It's, so we fix those issues pretty quickly. <laughs> she sounds a key person to this She's business. Major stakeholder. <laughs> it sounds a very positive story in terms of how things have flowed. And you've learned things, but in many ways there's been a sort of wind behind you, whether it's in terms of what you do or hiring the right people, being in that network. Yep. And where are these people coming from? So we have four offices today, five actually, um, but the biggest is in San Francisco. So we have 300 people there. We have 100 people in Clearwater, Florida, 100 people in Cork, Ireland, and about 100 people in Estonia, Tallinn. And then the initial 50 that joined Malwarebytes were from this community, this forum that I was talking about earlier, and they're all at home. So it turns out if you ask somebody, you know that thing you're doing already on the forum? Can I pay you to do the same thing on our forum or help customers move you know, uh, through Malwarebytes and experience Malwarebytes? They mostly say yes. So the initial 50 people, and still many of them are with us today. In fact, I'd say 95% of them, the first 50, came from really this grassroots movement of, you know, we're starting Malwarebytes, who wants to come? It's one of the best recruiting tools we've had. Our threat research team do not have formal educations around cybersecurity. I could name on less than one hand, I'm sure, (laughs) how many people actually have a cybersecurity degree or even cybersecurity experience prior to joining Malwarebytes. We wanted to change the game. And a lot of the people we found to recruit were people who were doing this open source or for free on a forum and had been blogging about stuff they've seen. And we realized that's the kind of person we wanted at the company. I'll give you one example. The person that helped me back in 2003, I I looked it up. We were looking for a summit for a keynote presentation. I said, when was I impacted by malware? And I found the forum post. And here's me asking, you know, I've got a problem. Here's what's happening. And this woman, Mika from Belgium, came to my rescue. Today, she is still our director of threat research. She's in Belgium. And I've never met her. She doesn't travel. I've not been to Belgium. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I imagine you're dealing with a certain kind of person as well in the nature of what you're doing. Yeah, and it's very like-minded, right? They love working. They love security. And so this isn't really a job. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had to have with people that say, go on vacation or stop working. It's two in the morning. And how do you get people to take more vacation? <laughs> this is hard. I met a CEO who said he fires people if they don't take vacation. I take it you don't have that policy. No, we we don't have that policy right now. We have what's called open time off, which is take as much as you want, and people still won't take it. Tracking time you've taken and giving you a limit to that, and it may be inconvenient, that's just nonsense to me. Having stuffy offices for the executive team, that's just nonsense to me. So we have open space. And I think that's helped a lot because I'm more approachable, the executive team's approachable, the managers are approachable, and you can have those open conversations. We lost our sales leader, and I said time to move my my stuff and I packed up all my things I went down one floor I sat in the thick of it and I said I'm gonna run sales for three months because I actually want to see how it's going here and right away you start hearing things on phone calls that are completely inaccurate and you go how did we go this wrong I started interviewing some of the salespeople and they said look I joined the company and within a week I was on the phone with a customer nobody taught me what to say I went wow right so Well, that's an easy solution. Before anybody hits the sales floor, we need them in a a training program for two, four weeks. 
right? And putting that in place. So I think having open office policy makes you more approachable. People come to you with problems that you can solve because if you don't put the problems out there, you can't solve them. And it gives you more visibility to really what's going on in the organization. And you'll find a lot of terrible things. You'll find a lot of good things. Don't get me wrong. But if you're a founder worth your weight in gold, you're looking for the stuff to fix, right? You love fixing the stuff, not yes. just patting yourself on the back every day. Whatever you may do, people say, that's the boss sitting by me. And you may pick up things, but there may be also the things that people are, I can't do this now. He's sitting near me and yeah. what's going on? It takes two weeks to break them down because the boss shows up behind you and you're like, I have to behave for 24 hours. But if you sit there for six weeks, they can't keep that up for six weeks. The stress will come out. The problems will all come out. And you start being able to solve some of this stuff for the organization. So, you know, the first couple of weeks were very, everybody was timid. You know, everything's perfect. Everything's great. Don't look over here. And then a couple of weeks later, you see the fighting. You see the problems. You see, you know, the dirt. And as a company grows, you then get other managers. Do you do anything to encourage other people to carry this on? Yeah, one of the things we do very well, I'd say, is we have great leadership programs within the company. So if you are managing one person or more, you must go through this leadership program, which is a four-day investment into your time, basically. So we have a consultant that comes in, somebody I trust very, very dearly. He's actually my executive coach as well. And it starts with some basic exercises like a lifeline. You know, what makes you the way you are? And sitting through some of those exercises, knowing some of the managers, it resonates why they turned out the way they are, right? If maybe they lost their family very early on, they're very, very self-sufficient. And that gets all the managers to act like peers because the biggest challenge I have is silos get created and communication doesn't go back and forth. And if you can get people in a room for four days talking through their lifeline, their conflict style, which I'm a big avoider. I know this about myself and that means I can change it about myself. So a lot of it is basic awareness around the problems you have as an individual or the the strengths you have as an individual and how you can help the rest of the organization. So we really invest into our leadership program. We talk about what performance culture actually means, you know, why people are motivated. It's the most basic motive is just trying not to get eaten alive, like, you know, back in the day. Now it's the stick and the carrot, right? But in the future, Motivation 3.0 is really people do things because they're passionate about it, right? Why did I start this company? I was passionate about security, not because I was trying to stay alive or because somebody was going to beat me if I didn't, right? And so the world is changing where these big organizations use stick and carrot, which is you do this, we reward you. You don't do this, we fire you. Whereas in today's job world or whatever you want to call it, people work, and especially millennials, because they're very passionate about it. Tesla doesn't pay that much, right? SpaceX does not pay that much. People are working at SpaceX because they're launching damn rockets right into the sky. So that's really what we talk a lot about is how do we motivate our teams to work on cool things? And that's what we're, how we're going to get a performant culture out of them. And are there any things you pick out of that? Yeah, that's a tough one to answer. I think we give people freedoms. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Right now we're working on an incubator inside Malwarebytes where people can use 10% of, of their time. And we've seen this successfully at other companies. Um, you know, the Facebook like button was built out of one of these incubators. So having that where people can go work on their ideas, because I've seen this too often. Somebody at the company has a really great idea. They go to their manager. Their manager's too busy to talk or goes, yep, this looks like a great idea. I'll go talk to somebody about it. And it goes nowhere. 
So we're trying to skip right down to the individual contributor who says, I think I have a really cool idea. I don't know what to do with it. Oh, there's a formal way to submit that or just go work on it. It's been successful for us in very small chunks. And now we're formalizing the process around, hey, we'll actually give you investment within the company. We'll give you money. And if a really cool idea comes out of it, you get the patent, right? If we can patent it and you get a $25,000 cash reward and you can go work at any office you want for a week and you can have dinner with us, right? And that kind of stuff is, is pretty interesting. Those sound like pretty good carrots. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it is some of the carrot stuff, right? But at the end of the day, people aren't necessarily working for that. But, you know, I think if they're really willing to put effort into it, we wanted to reward that. Yeah. It sounds like there are lots of light moments, lots of yeah. good moments moving forward. But there are dark moments, aren't there? There are. As I always say, as an entrepreneur, the highs are high, the lows are low. <laughs> and the challenges we've had is we, we are a technology company. We aren't a sales and marketing company. And so we think we have the best product out there. We haven't done the right job of putting it out there, selling it. So we have a couple of competitors that are marketing savants. And we think their product is pretty ineffective and not as good. But because of how they market and position the product with certain buzzwords and, and elements that you know resonate with their customers we lose deals, even though if we can put the product head to head. We've had a couple of proof of concepts where a school district had 3,000 computers and they only put Malwarebytes on 300 to test. Over a weekend, they were impacted by a massive ransomware attack. 2,700 computers went down, 300 computers stayed up. We won that deal on Monday morning. If we can have that proof of concept over a considerable period of time, we will always win that deal. So I think we need to flex that muscle more. And I brought on a director of marketing, director of sales, and we will flex that muscle. But it just shows you at the end of the day, it's not the best product that wins. It's a combination of best product, best marketing, and and how you kind of position that to the market. So that's not my specialty. I'm a huge nerd engineer, and we're trying to flex that muscle a bit more. Malwarebytes had an original way of recruiting and retaining staff. I asked David Molian of Cranfield School of Management to comment on this. I think... The route that Martin followed was absolutely the dream route, not available to everybody, but this idea of tapping into a network where you're already known, people know who you are, they know about your business, you've proven your technical competence. That network is tight, everybody knows everyone else, and that's the best place to recruit from. In fact, I suspect that people came and knocked on Martin's door. He talks, after all, about talking to people who were doing this kind of security software out of love and saying, would you mind if I paid you? And isn't that a wonderful position to be in? So I think if you're able to identify a network of like-minded people who see the opportunity as you do and will really like to rise to the challenge, that's your best point of entry. So are these your early customers who are going to work for you? They might be because they'll perceive the need for it. And it's not uncommon for early-stage entrepreneurs to recruit people who are customers or work in customer organisations. It's a delicate balancing act because clearly you don't want to irritate your customers. So you need to use a certain amount of tact and diplomacy. But it can often be a very good source of recruiting people with the right attitude and the right aptitude. And when you're early stage, you can't necessarily pay people a lot of money. So how do you motivate them? I think it's very important to understand that there are two fundamental things I think that drive people is reward and recognition. 
often those two things get confused. It may well be that in an early stage business, recognition is just as important as reward, particularly in a business where technical competence, like a software business, is really important. And the fact that a founder can say to an employee, that's a great piece of code, that's terrific, you've solved a tricky problem for a customer, is as important as the money they get in their pay packet. It's not a complete substitute for it, but it's important. Let's leave the last word to our entrepreneur. How would he describe the defining values of his company? No nonsense. Now, it's written a bit differently <laughs> with a little bit of a cuss word in there. But the idea behind it is we're tired of politics. We're tired of bureaucracy. You know, many, and especially millennials, don't want to work for some of the biggest companies in the world because of that process. And you exhaust yourself just going through the motions of trying to survive in that kind of organization. So having a value of no nonsense, we've really asserted that we're not like the other antivirus companies. We won't tolerate BS in the in the company, and neither will our customers, and that's why they're moving off of these big antivirus companies. Next week, we talk to a serial entrepreneur whose latest business idea was sparked by panic over a lost child in a supermarket. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to contribute to our Financial Times podcast survey. We're asking listeners to rate our podcasts and to tell us what you like and don't like about our shows. Thanks for all replies so far, but if you haven't yet done so and would like to contribute to our survey, follow the link in our show notes or go to ft.com forward slash podcast feedback and enter our prize draw. And don't forget, you can catch up on previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.